take out your Bibles again, and let's turn to Genesis uh, chapter 33. And we will be looking today at verses 1 through 17. Genesis 33, 1 through 17. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Pay careful attention to the reading of it. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel, and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him, and embraced him, and fell on his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. When Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord at Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth, and built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. Thus far the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your word. We ask, O God, that that your word would be hidden in our hearts. We pray now, Father, for the preaching of your word. May we learn, may we understand what this passage is about, and may we apply it to our lives. We're thankful, O God, for all of your blessings. 
Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, It may seem inevitable that you and I, at some point in our lives, will find ourselves at odds with another person. Well, it's really not a question of if you are at odds with somebody else, but a question of when and with whom you will be at odds with. And in these sort of situations, there typically are no innocent parties, as both individuals contribute in some fashion to what may be wrong in their relationship. And so, what is to be done? The scriptures instruct us to be reconciled with our brother, to pursue peace, to live peaceably with all, so far as it is possible and depends on you. We are to aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, 2 Corinthians 13.11 says. Then add this promise to the end, and, so we're to do all those things, and the love of God, or and the, and the God of love and peace will be with you. So as we are reconciled to others and we seek to live in peace, God is dwelling with us. Now these are just a few biblical examples of the duty of Christians toward one another in reconciling. The Christian, the blood-bought, adopted child of the king, ought to do all that he or she can to live at peace and to be reconciled with other people. Because we have been reconciled to God in Christ. He bought us with His own blood, and we have been given a new nature. And so the pursuit of peace ought to be what you and I do as believers. We're to be reconciled. We're to pursue peace. But what about when it seems impossible? Well, our text today, then, is quite instructive for us, isn't it? What is impossible for men is possible for God, and God's promises are always true. In our passage today, Jacob found himself in a situation which seemed impossible. Many years prior, Jacob had hurt his brother Esau deeply by tricking him out of his birthright, stealing his blessing. And Esau was so angry that Jacob was forced to flee the land and to go live with his uncle, who also becomes his father-in-law, Laban. And after 20 years and much suffering at the hands of Laban, Jacob has emerged a transformed man. The Lord had sanctified Jacob through suffering. And he now had a large family, had many possessions, he'd been blessed greatly. And the Lord has now called him to return to the land of Canaan, the land which had been promised by God to his fathers. And so, Jacob heads back to the land. We saw last time how he had received word that Esau was meeting him and that he had 400 men with him. Now, this is frightening for Jacob, right? He's afraid. Well, what's he, what is he doing with his 400 men? I mean, Esau has an army. And so Jacob divides his people. He divides his flocks. And he spends the night at Peniel alone. And this is where, of course, he wrestles through the night with a man who, we 
know turns out to be the Lord himself. And as the new day has come, it is now time for Jacob to face his brother. An interaction which Jacob has all along been dreading. But what happens next comes as something of a surprise. For Jacob and Esau are reconciled. And the Jacob-Esau conflict comes to a happy conclusion. In fact, Jacob will exclaim of his brother, Seeing you is like seeing the face of God. This statement then links this encounter with the encounter that he had with God the night before. The wrestling match, which which had gone on through the night, which was very much like the wrestling match that Jacob had been engaged in with God and men throughout his entire life. So Jacob had faced God, and now he must face man, namely, he must face his brother, Esau. And so we pick up the narrative then in verse 1, and we read this, Jacob lifted up his eyes. Jacob lifted his eyes, which is to say that he looked up. He had uh, sort of gone through the, the uh, encounter from the evening before. You know, the sun has now risen, and there is Esau. Esau is coming. This phrase uh, used here typically is used as an indicator of divine providence. Jacob had been traveling on from his nocturnal encounter, and in God's providence, here's Esau. And so, after 20 years of separation, these twin brothers were to meet again at last. But Esau was coming with 400, a 400-man 400 army. And so it was going to happen. That the gifts which had been given... They were sent out ahead of him, uh, ahead of Jacob. Did these satisfy Esau's previous wrath? And Jacob is not sure. And so he divides his children behind him, his two wives, his female servants. Now, Jacob had already divided his people and his possessions into two groups the day before. But now he's dividing the two groups among the four women in preparation of meeting Esau. But notice that Jacob also took the further action of protecting those whom he loved best by putting them in the back of the group. And so he puts the servants and their children in the front. And they're his children, by the way, too. But they're in front. Then Leah and her children. And then last of all, Rachel and Joseph in the very back. This kind of favoritism, which is displayed here, will continue to plague the family into the future and may have helped fuel some of the jealousy which we'll see later over Joseph. It was surely painful for some of the family to see that they were, at least in Jacob's eyes, expendable. Nevertheless, Jacob took uh, these preventative steps, but then he puts himself at the front. Now this, understand, this is the new leader. This is Israel. He's no coward. He was not going to hide behind his family. He was certainly afraid of his brother, but he wasn't going to hide behind uh, his family. Jacob goes before his family, and then it says that he bowed down to the ground, notice this, seven times until he came near to his brother. Seven times he bows down before his brother. Now what is he doing? What is he doing? 
Well, this is a sign of submission of an inferior to a superior. Jacob, his nose in the dirt, bowing humbly before his brother as he comes. Let's just say that this is a sign of humility. Jacob is being humble before his brother Esau. Now, John Calvin suggests in his commentary that Jacob was paying worship to God, bowing seven times before his brother arrives. Now, that's possible. It could be, although I'm not sure that's what's being done here, based on what we know of Near Eastern practices. It was a well, it's a well-attested practice in ancient Near Eastern uh, court protocol for an inferior or a servant to bow seven times before a great king. Certainly, Jacob was a changed man, and he was worshiping the, the, the Lord God uh, alone. But the text does not make clear where this bowing was directed, only that it was before his brother. So what we can be certain about is this, that Jacob was contrite as respects his past sins against his brother, and he wished to show deference to Esau. And therefore, we can say with some confidence that Jacob was showing great humility before Esau. He was lowering himself to the ground these seven times, emphasizing that seven times emphasizes the completeness of his humility. That's the significance of the seven times. He's he's completely humble before his brother. Jacob is making clear how he viewed himself in reference to his brother Esau. Notice something else. As Jacob greets Esau as the humble servant before his Lord, showing great humility, showing deference, notice how Esau greets Jacob. Esau greets Jacob as his brother and his equal. In fact, it says that he ran to greet him and embraced him and kissed him. And both men openly weep. What a difference between these two. This is just the sort of thing that a family member who loves another deeply would do. He's happy to ignore all of the normal ancient court protocol. The, you know, the actions of an inferior, uh, of a superior before his inferior. This was his brother. This is, my, this is my brother. He loves him. He embraces him and he weeps with him. Both Esau and Jacob were overcome with emotion. Any doubt which Jacob may have had regarding the acceptance is removed with this singular embrace. Esau treated him like a long-lost relative, which is what he wants, right? He's not, a, he's not a servant. He's not an enemy. Note that the narrator piles up five verbs, one after the other, in quick succession. Ran, embraced, fell, or also could be threw himself upon, kissed, wept. Now, in the Hebrew text, the scribes add dots above the word kissed. And the reason they did this is because they thought that Esau was insincere. But I don't see any indication in this that this was insincere on Esau's part. In fact, what we see recorded here is precisely the sort of interaction you would expect from someone who longed to be reunited with a loved one. 
And this longing culminated in both of these men holding one another and weeping. This is, this is a highly emotional reunion. And really, this is beautiful. This is the cathartic release of two decades of negative feelings being washed away in their embrace and through their tears. Not only had Jacob experienced a change of heart, but at least it appears that Esau had as well. For he no longer hated his brother, but he again ran to him, embraced him, wept with him. This outpouring of emotion has a very different feel to it than what, what was encountered when, when Jacob, uh, the, encounter, the, the encounter which Jacob had with Laban. Remember, Laban had to be warned by God in a dream not to harm Jacob. What we see here is genuine, heartfelt reunion. Now, of course, we don't know how this heart change came about for Esau, like we do with Jacob. It's not recorded for us. We don't know if the Lord had related to him in some fashion, even if he wasn't the chosen instrument of covenant succession. After all, he was raised, though, in a household of faith like Jacob. In fact, we don't really know anything about Esau's faith, or whether if he had any faith. All we know is the results which we see here. We don't know any more about Esau's faith or lack of it during their time apart or even after they depart company. We know nothing of these things. Nevertheless, what we have here is a beautiful reunion. But you know, also, is another example of God's providence. God was also here even as it relates to his brother, is caring for Jacob and caring for Jacob's family. God was, again, sparing them from any harm. And so as the weeping and as the emotions of this moment begin to subside, Esau's gaze goes beyond his brother. and 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 he looks toward all those who are now with him. And he looks and he sees all of the women and all of the children. And so he asks Jacob, who, who are these with you? And Jacob's response then raises the level of discussion. He says, these are the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Now notice that Jacob attributes his family to God's good favor. It is the Lord who has poured out his grace in giving children. In fact, isn't this exactly the case with covenant children? Aren't all of our children because God has graciously given them to us? God has given, graciously given children that the children and their mothers would survive this encounter with Esau was also an answer to Jacob's earnest prayer. He had been praying that all things would turn out well. Now notice also that Jacob does not use the language of blessing. You know, often we speak of you know, children are a blessing from the Lord. But this is not how Jacob speaks here. And I think that's actually intentional. He rather, instead of saying blessing, he says they were graciously given. And so he, he, he wisely avoids the word blessing so as not to give offense. For that brings to mind the source of the original conflict. Remember, 
Jacob had stolen the blessing from Esau. And so he calls them, you know, God's graciously given them. Later he will use blessing, but not here. Then verse 6. In succession, the two female servants and their children, Leah and her children, and finally Rachel and her uh, single child, Joseph, they all come and they bow down before Esau. And the order in which they bow recalls the number, uh, the, calls the manner in which they had been divided. It's as, as if, you know, as they were coming, they do this. Well, Esau then changes the subject to gifts. The gifts which had been sent before him, uh, before Jacob had come. He says, verse 8, What what do you mean by all this company that I met? Or literally, what are you doing with this camp? Now, this could be a play on words. Essentially, what is your intention with this army? Jacob had sent an army of animals to Esau. His army, though, was a magnanimous gift. Esau was curious. What, what, did, what did Jacob intend with all these flocks and herds? What, you know, I think it was what, 550 animals they were given. What are, you, what are you doing with all this, Jacob? And Esau may have been seeking clarification since the number of animals was exceedingly large. I mean, it's one thing to come offering a few things as gifts, right? Sometimes you may travel somewhere, you see a family member, and like, hey, I brought you a little something, right? It's another thing to bring somebody, you know, an exceeding amount, of, a, a large amount of animals. You know, if you came to my house and said, hey, I brought you 550, you know, animals for you. I don't have any place for them. This is a lot. So Esau wants to know, what's the purpose of this? Why did you do this? Well, Jacob answers, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Remember, previously Jacob had been deceitful. He deceived Esau. He deceived his father. He wants to make amends. And so he's forthright with his intentions. He wants to make things right between him and Esau. He wants to give Esau a blessing out of his abundance. Though Esau, though considering the size of the gift, courteously rejects it, saying, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Notice again the contrast in each man's address. Jacob calls Esau Lord. He's maintaining his posture of humility and deference. He's treating Esau as his superior. Esau, meanwhile, says, keep what is yours, brother. He calls him brother. Jacob has come in humility, seeking to be reconciled. Esau comes as the wronged party, but eager to embrace and accept Jacob as his brother. Well, but this is a demonstration of reconciliation. Each man's posture toward the other is instructive for us. When you and I are the offending party, in other words, we, we're the ones who've hurt somebody else, we should come in humility and a desire to make things right and quietly willing to wait for the other to be ready. Now, we might not have been 100% at fault, but we've made our contribution. But when we are the offended party, 
In some respects, this is the harder place to be, isn't it? Because we need to come with a posture of humility also. When we are the offended party, we need to be eager to forgive and eager to embrace the other and be reconciled to them. We don't need to unnecessarily make them suffer. We don't need to to sort of put off, you know, over the years, um, I've seen, this is particularly in, in, in respect to couples, couples where one of them refuses to be reconciled right away. And they do this, and they'll, they'll tell me this, they just because the other person needs to be taught a lesson. Well, that's not godly. In addition, no one is fully innocent. Surely Esau was not without fault, too. In fact, we know this. But he was, will, he was willing to overlook an offense for the sake of a relationship with his brother. Now, someone might object. If I forgive and embrace the relationship, then they might fail me again. They may hurt me again. Well, this is true. I mean, this is the nature of relationships, right? You might get hurt in the relationship. Thus, that can't be a reason not to forgive and be reconciled. In fact, Jesus, in considering this question, asked his disciples, how many times were to forgive someone over and over again? If you've been sinned against over and over and over again, how many times do you need to to forgive them and be reconciled? Now, remember Peter, who thought he was being very generous. He said, well, you know, seven times? That seems like a a good number, right? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. Now, beloved, this is not a math problem. Sometimes we treat it like that. It's not a math problem. The answer is not 490. Oh, sorry, you got to 490. This is 491. I'm out. No, that's not. You missed the point. Jesus is basically saying an unlimited number of times. Over and over and over and over again. Beloved congregation, if God has forgiven you in Christ an unlimited amount of times, how much more should we show grace to others and forgive them? To love another is to embrace them even as they have faults. It is to forgive them and no longer hold their sin over them. Beloved, relationships are a risk but as one in which Esau here is willing to take. And so Esau did not wish to take the gifts which are offered to him. He says, I have enough, brother. Esau, though he had not gained his wealth through the blessing of Isaac, nor through farming or shepherding, Esau had gained his wealth through war. Nevertheless, each son, in their own way, has been blessed. And so Esau insists that Jacob keep his possessions. His conciliatory spirit, along with his earlier emotions, stress to the reader that Esau Esau is no longer an enemy of Jacob. He is his friend, his brother. And keep what you have seems to indicate a final abandonment of any claim on his birthright. Keep what you have, brother. 
Nevertheless, Jacob, though, insists. Look at verse 10. He says, no, please. Like the man at Peniel, Jacob is insistent. His, I will not let you go until you bless me, becomes an effect. I will not let you go until you let me bless you. If Esau has truly forgiven him and accepts him, then he will take the earnest gift of Jacob. Please let me bless you, brother. Jacob appeals to Esau's acceptance as a reflection of his own acceptance with God. At Peniel, he had seen God and had been graciously spared. Now he sees the face of his brother and again has been graciously spared. He has been received. Hence why he remarks, For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Prior to dealing with his brother, Jacob needed to deal with God. Now he has seen his brother face to face, and they are no longer enemies. But they have been received with open arms and in tears. And now, since Esau has accepted his guilt, he should also accept Jacob's tribute. Let me bless you. And so he pleads. Please accept my blessing. Here, notice he's using the word now, blessing. Please accept my blessing. I had stolen a blessing from you years prior. Please now accept my blessing. I'm making it right. As best as I can, please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously graciously with me and because I have enough. God has given so much to me Notice, notice that change in terminology. This is reflected in the Hebrew. Previously, Jacob had asked him to accept his gift. Now, he says, please accept my blessing to you. Jacob had stolen Esau's blessing, and now he wanted to grant him a blessing. Now, neither brother had brought up the previous sins of Jacob. You know, you don't, we don't see anything here where you know, Esau says, well, you know, you know, what happened 20 years ago? I'm, really, I'm still a little bent out of shape over that. No, you're my brother. Neither, neither bring this up, and now Jacob subtly is trying to make, pay reparations for it. He's offering a blessing to him in exchange for a, the blessing that he had, had taken. God had shown great kindness toward Jacob. It treated him graciously. And he had more than enough. And so he wanted to bestow some of that upon Esau. Even if Esau didn't really need it. And so Jacob urges him. And so he, he, he insisted and was accepted. Now refusing a gift was a part of near, uh, near Eastern courtesy and so should not be taken at face value. Nevertheless, in this case, it seems that Esau was actually quite sincere. He really didn't want to take anything from his brother. But he, he takes it only because Jacob urges him to do so. This was the passionate persuasion of Jacob. This is also a picture of reconciliation and restoration. As each brother looked not to their own needs or to their own desires, but to show kindness and grace toward one another. 
Esau accepted the offering not as a gift exchange, but as payment for wrong done. He didn't feel it was necessary to do so, but Esau desired to help his brother clear his conscience. And so he takes it. Whereas the conflict with Laban had been resolved with a non-aggression pact, with Esau there's genuine expressions of repentance and forgiveness and humility. And the reconciliation is sealed with the acceptance of Jacob's offer of reparations. Which is to say this, that true reparations are freely offered, not demanded or taken. Jacob gave a gift which Esau graciously received And this was then witnessed by 400 of Esau's men along with the entire household of Jacob. And so, with the brothers now having mended their relationship and have now reconnected as brothers, it was assumed, at least by Esau, that they would then go together. So, verse 12, Esau says, Let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob following Esau to Seir was not to be part, was not to be part of the plan. The brothers will here disengage, and there is an underlying tension in the text for Jacob. He did not want to come and he did not want to go and visit with Esau, nor did he come to settle in Seir. He does not wish now to freshly offend his brother. And so he needed a gracious way to disengage. A hunter with a 400-man army moves and lives very differently from a man who has many small children and animals. I mean, really, their lives are incompatible with one another. And so verse 13, Jacob said, My Lord knows the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. I mean, Esau can look at the evidence. He can see that their lives are incompatible. Jacob is a shepherd. Esau is a warrior. And these children could not live, these children and these flocks could not live under soldiering circumstances. And so Jacob turns down Esau's offer courteously by explaining that the children among the flocks and herds would falter if they're driven too hard. His children are described as weak, vulnerable, unable to withstand such a hard trip. Jacob expressed concern that he would lose many of the young animals as a result of a forced march. And so he he proposes an alternative plan. He suggests that Esau pass on ahead of them and that he would come more slowly at the pace of the livestock and the children and then would meet him. Now Moses does not provide any editorial on Jacob's Deception, Because Jacob had no intention of meeting Esau in Seir. I think that's pretty clear. Now it could be that this was simply a polite way of turning his brother down without giving offense. After all, the truth would have been clear to Esau as well. And so, Esau accepts Jacob's explanations. But wants to be a further help in watching out for his brother. And so he offers to leave some of his men with Jacob. These men were to to be left to guard and to guide Jacob and the household. But again, Jacob declined, saying, what need is there? In other words, what he's saying is this is excessive and unnecessary. 
thank you, but we don't really need you to, uh, to have men come with us. And then he adds, reflecting on what has already been said, let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. Now he's already gained Esau's favor. What was he asking now? Well, what he was asking now was that Esau indulge him in this. Truth is, Esau probably already knew that this was Jacob's way of slightly declining his proposal. Jacob could not refuse him directly and thus risk offending and angering him. So there's some cultural things happening here. And Esau understood it. You know, he's, he's being turned down, you know, <laughs> softly, as it were. And so there's no further rebuttal from Esau. He, Esau doesn't continue to argue the point. He accepts it. And he, he, and his, he grants favor to Jacob. And so verse 16, so Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Israel and Edom must live separately. They would be neighbors as nations, but they were not to live among one another anymore. And here the man who had despised his birthright leaves the scene. No longer does Esau appear on the pages of redemptive history. Now you might wonder, was he a believer? Again, we don't know. But what we do know is that the line of the promised seed would not flow through him. His family was to be outside of God's covenant promises and of the kingdom. And Jacob travels to Succoth, which means shelters or booths. He builds a home for himself, a shelter for his livestock, and then settles back into the promised land. Of course, as we will see in coming weeks, there are some very uncomfortable things that Jacob will experience as he's back in the land as well. Well, Jacob and Esau's relationship had been broken for 20 years. That's a long time. Largely because of the actions of Jacob. And they were reconciled because both men were committed to that reconciliation. And this is instructive. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Since we have been reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we too should be reconciled to our fellow men. We sin against one another, And we are sinned against. If we know someone has something against us, then we should at least try to deal with it and make it right. In fact, for some of you, your prayer and your worship is hindered because you are at odds with another believer. And sometimes that other believer that you're at odds with is your own spouse. It is incumbent on you both, then, to work to make the relationship right for a number of reasons. And the fact is, it never is it only one person's fault. So be reconciled, Christian, to your brother or sister. Now you might say that, what about the fact that in the end, Jacob and Esau didn't remain together? What does that teach us? Well, be careful. First of all, there are a variety of lessons which can come out of a single passage of Scripture. And 
not everything has one, a one-to-one analogy for us. In this case, just because they're reconciled relationally does not mean that they necessarily needed to dwell together permanently. In fact, Jacob was called by God to return to the land of Canaan, not Seir where his brothers lived. Jacob needed to be faithful to God's word. God was calling him to be the covenant successor and to dwell in the land of Canaan. And so our being reconciled to others does not mean necessarily... Or, well, it does not mean. To be reconciled to one another does not mean to ignore God's word. And that's definitely the case for Jacob. It also does not mean that we you know, are dwelling together. Jacob understood that the forgiveness which Esau showed him was linked with the forgiveness which God has shown him. God graciously receives his elect because the Son of God gave himself for our sins. Therefore, Jacob was submitted first and foremost to his God and to his king. And this is the way it is for us as well. The Lord calls you and I to be reconciled to one another. To follow after our God, to walk in his ways, and to live to his glory. And to that end, we can take the risk, then, of forgiving others. When, when we're sinned against, it's, we can risk forgiving others because we know that God is pleased with this. And God is on our side, caring for us as well. You find yourself at odds? Well, it's a question not of if, but when, and with whom. Beloved Christian, be reconciled with your brother. In Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for the instruction uh, that we get from it. God, there may be in our lives relationships which need to be mended. We pray, Father, that you would be working in, in hearts, that you would draw us together for our, our commonality is in our union with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we, may we live out that union and communion together as your body, seeking to be reconciled, seeking to live at peace with one another. Father, you know the areas of our lives and the depths of our hearts. May we be convicted. Uh, may we live out what you and your word call us to do. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.